This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Higher education was a hot topic among the Democratic candidates for president in the debates held at the end of June. Uh, Vice President Biden uh, wanted free community colleges. Bernie Sanders wanted free college for all. Pete uh, Buttigieg uh, disagreed, saying he didn't want working class taxpayers pay for the education of the children of millionaires. But nearly everybody wanted to forgive student debt. The only question was whether the taxpayers should pay all of the trillions outstanding or, or just some percentage. So, so why is the demand for a free college such a hot topic? Why has college tuition gone through the roof? Uh, why are people finding themselves in debt? To discuss these and other higher ed issues, I have with me today on the Education Exchange Richard Vetter. Professor Emeritus of Economics at Ohio University and Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. Professor Vetter is the author of a new book on higher education entitled Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Thank you, Professor Vetter, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, Richard, let's start with the big question. Why are college costs so high, and uh, why have they gone up so much? Well, uh, colleges are labor-intensive institutions, as you well know. Uh, uh, and in many ways, we are doing things in colleges uh, the same way as people were doing them two, three hundred years ago, and arguably in the same way Socrates did them 2,400 years ago. We stand in front of an audience and teach to a group of students. But what's, and as time goes on and productivity in the rest of the world rises rapidly, it doesn't rise as fast in higher education, allegedly because it's impossible to uh, use machines and uh, to substitute for workers, and as wages rise across the uh, the growing economy, uh, it becomes more expensive to educate professors. That's the standard line. Uh, William Baumel at uh, Princeton made that point uh, more than a half century ago. And I remember that. I, I like to quote him on that. That also applies to uh, elementary and uh, secondary education. Absolutely. It applies across the board in education, and uh, you folks at Education Next have been making that point for a long time, uh, quite effectively, I might add. Uh, there is, however, I think something special in higher ed that has led for tuition fees to rise a lot. And the thing that I think deserves most attention is the enormous growth in the role that the federal government has played uh, since uh, the Higher Education Act of 1965, and especially since the growth in student loan programs, uh, largely in the 70s and beyond, uh, 1970s and beyond. And uh, Bill Bennett was absolutely the former education secretary. I think was absolutely right when he said in an op-ed in the New York Times in 1987 that colleges are exploiting the student loan programs by simply raising their tuition fees, knowing that the 
students can borrow the money to, to pay whatever the, the cost may be. So instead of increasing fees, say, 1, 2, 3 percent a year, uh, they started, uh, colleges started increasing them much more aggressively, 4, 5, 6, 7 percent a year. And they did that for the 40 years, essentially, till very recently. And so the cost of colleges, uh, college have gotten uh, astronomically high. Well, what, what are they doing with all the money? Well, that's the that's the great question, uh, uh, and uh, the the answer. I've looked at the data on this, and to me, the answer is pretty clear. But they're not paying uh, they're not paying the teachers or the professors uh, that no, much no, no, more, are right. they? Professor salaries have gone up, oh, moder- you know, somewhat, but no more than the salaries of people in any other occupation. In fact, somewhat less. A lot of the money has gone for uh, administrative bloat, a huge increase in the number of non-teaching personnel at, at colleges and universities. A little bit of the money has gone, more than a little at some schools, uh, for amenities, you might say, fancy buildings, uh, 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 various sorts of amenities, uh, climbing walls, and lazy rivers, and things of that nature. But a big part of it has, as I say, gone for this administrative bureaucracy. I don't want... Uh, uh, at, at the college I teach has a very typical uh, uh, sort of mid-quality state university. In the mid-70s, there were about two professors for every what we might call administrator. Uh, now there are more administrators than professors, and I'm sure the same is true uh, at schools such as the ones you've taught at, Paul, such as Harvard, yeah, for well, example. Yeah, well, you know, Harvard is one thing. It definitely is what you're saying is true of Harvard, but but I went to a little college that was a lot like Ohio University, Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. And these little colleges that are private schools, they're, they're on the edge of, you know, they've got to really work hard to, to attract students, and they've got to worry about their prices, and they have to discount their tuition rates. Uh, they're in a competitive market. Are, are, are you sure they're running... Uh, um, bloated administration or are they using this new staff to to do the things that professors don't want to do well i think there's a little bit of that too i i uh, i don't uh, absolve the professors from uh, i think the professors uh, place uh, some uh, have some role to play in what's happened uh, professors don't want to spend time advising students for example anymore they uh, they uh, don't uh, want to be bothered with some things that they used to do uh, 25 50 years ago and which they do at small liberal arts colleges such as the one you're talking about so I uh, and uh, teaching loads have fallen from faculty uh, uh, across the country especially at the 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 elite schools but and the high research intensive schools but even at other schools as well uh, because professors are writing articles in some cases for what I call the journal of last resort trying to get uh, tenure and uh, uh, so forth writing articles on obscure topics that get very little attention by anyone. No one reads them, no one cites them. Uh, and so I, I think we have probably have some misinvestment going on in higher ed. Some might even say overinvestment 
and, and uh, we're not, not getting away from the basics of, you know, what, what universities and colleges are supposed to be doing. Well, you know, you entitled that chapter The Research Conundrum, and I thought about that because on the one hand, I, I follow what you're saying about the unsighted journal articles. There's plenty of them out there in obscure uh, uh, journals in the social sciences, but how about, uh, you know, th th research at major universities and even minor universities, some people think is the engine that's driving the American economy, that this intellectual capital that's being developed is the new technologies that are evolving. If it hadn't been for these, these, these places, the Research Triangle or Silicon Valley or Austin, Texas or Boston, Massachusetts, wherever, you wouldn't have this this tremendous uh, 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 economic growth that uh, has been spawned. Well, there's no question that universities have done a lot of positive things that have allowed uh, tech, uh, to advance technology and therefore productivity in the, in the, in the uh, labor force and beyond, and that this has raised product uh, raised the, uh, the rate of economic growth from what it otherwise would be. There's no question about that. The question is, however, whether whether we have reached diminishing returns in some of this research, and it may be uh, the Department of uh, say sociology, for example, may be not making the same sorts of contributions as uh, the, uh, the departments in the in the natural sciences or engineering, for example. And uh, it may be that having 15 uh, professors uh, doing research might make sense in some institutions, but having 27 doesn't. That at the margin, those extra faculty are doing relatively trivial and minor things that are not making a, a, a solid uh, contribution to economic growth. So uh, the law of diminishing returns, as we talk about it in economics, does apply in, in almost every area of human endeavor, including uh, uh, universities, I think. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and I guess it's also, but there's sort of a conundrum here, because if you're going to celebrate research in the natural sciences, how can you denigrate research in sociology and English and, uh, and uh, the uh, humanities? I mean, it's sort yeah, of a yeah. You know, I, I I agree with that, and in fact, I made that argument. But you know, on the other hand, uh, I do think there is a tendency sometimes to bash the humanity, uh, to bash the liberal arts and in liberal arts colleges a little too much, uh, because in some cases I think they're advancing uh, things like learning how to write well, learning how to think critically, and so forth, better than uh, uh, some uh, subjects that we study, like maybe recreation or uh, communications, these very vocationally oriented subjects that we're putting a lot of emphasis on in universities. We're getting away from, you know, history and government and economics, the things that you and I have been teaching our whole lives. And maybe, you know, I, I worry a little bit about us overdoing that as well. Yeah, you know, I have a, just met a young man who uh, desperately wants to study Latin uh, when he goes off to college, and his mom said, well, really, uh, is this a good idea? And I said, absolutely, he should follow his passion. And I've discovered that people who are really fine Latin scholars, there's really no 
they may not go on and become a professor in that area, but they may be able to use the skills that they have acquired uh, so that they become some of the best communicators uh, available and become very valuable uh, wherever, whatever occupation they pursue. Yeah, actually, I've seen some data, and admittedly, it's questionable maybe by some, but for philosophy majors, uh, in looking and comparing them with business administration majors, at the beginning of the career, the business administration majors typically make more money than the philosophy majors, but in mid-career, the philosophy majors have often caught up and even gone ahead uh, because they are, uh, they're obviously not practicing philosophy in their vocation, but they're doing something where they are, are using some of the skills that philosophers pick up during the course of their study, and they are, have become very adept at learning on the job, uh, learning by doing. Well, listen, one of the topics that you, you uh, discuss in your book that's really uh, <laughs> making headlines these days is intercollegiate athletics. And uh, you even uh, mentioned, and I, I would imagine this was, uh, although the book has only come out recently, that th you wrote it before the latest scandal, but you almost forecast that scandal that uh, was going on in, in this sector. What would you just sort of illuminate for our audience um, what's going on in intercollegiate education? Uh, with respect to athletics, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, we have a highly commercialized uh, intercollegiate athletics system. That, yeah, you're uh, right. I said education. I meant to say athletics. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I understood that. And uh, it's really, uh, there's multiple tiers of this. Uh, at an Ivy League school, such as the one you, uh, such as at Harvard, uh, uh, intercollegiate athletics is not a very big deal financially or in terms of, even in terms of the time commitment of students, it's moderately big deal, but it's not a, a overwhelmingly large thing. But if you go to, say, uh, let's say a Big Ten school or a, a uh, uh, University of Alabama or uh, Texas or uh, UC, even UCLA uh, or Berkeley, uh, the, the, the athlete, the, those athletic programs in some cases are costing 50, 75, 100 million dollars a year for the schools to run. At the more successful of those schools, uh, they take in enough money to pay most of the costs. But there are a lot of schools, including the one I'm at, that are losing $20 million a year or more on intercollegiate athletics. Rutgers is losing, I think, somewhere between 30 and $50 million a year. And that's real money. That's $1,000 a student uh, that the students are somehow subsidizing what I call ball-throwing contests. And uh, in some case, you know, I'm not against sports. I think sports are entertaining. I think even perhaps provide some leadership qualities for some of the students involved. But it's terribly expensive, and it's become terribly corrupt in so many ways. Uh, uh, so we are now seeing all these scandals of every sort, uh, everything from admission scandals related to athletics to sex scandals to all, all sorts of, of scandals, and, it, and, and it's detracting from the educational mission of the university. I think, in, in many cases. We've just gotten overboard on this. The, uh, the Europeans don't, 
do this. I don't think Oxford uh, has many uh, sports teams of any kind, or for that matter, even the Canadian universities. No, it's not uh, found anywhere else that I know of. Uh, to the anywhere near the extent as in the United States. I mean, the other, and it even goes into our elementary and secondary schools. I mean, there's other countries they have community sports teams, but those are run totally separate from the educational system. Now, do you think? So you you also are saying students aren't learning as much. You're not only saying it's costing more and people are diverting. You know, sports is is given much more attention than it deserves, but you are saying that students aren't learning as much. But yeah. let me let me give you a, a you know what I hear in response to that. That what I hear in response is look at a college degree is worth more today than ever before. So they must be learning something. Yes, but a college degree is a screening device. It is, uh, at the end of the day, you get a piece of paper that says, you're pretty smart, you're pretty bright, you're reasonably well-disciplined, you managed to work hard enough for four years to get this piece of paper. Uh, And uh, that's what the piece of paper says. But it doesn't necessarily say how much of all that learning that you picked up or how much of that hard work or how much of your innate intelligence, even your high IQ that you got from going to college. A lot of it came there before. So colleges are a screening device that screen out the best and the brightest from the rest of the population. And so a lot of the earnings differential associated with college has very little to do what colleges teach, but with other things. Now, I'm not saying colleges don't teach anything relevant or important. I'm not making that claim. But I am saying that uh, the earnings differential associated with a college education cannot be entirely attributed to what we professors uh, teach students while they're spending four four or more years with us. Uh, Moreover, another thing to keep in mind in all of this is that a large number of students don't make it through college. They start and they don't make it through. There's a problem at the K through 12 level with that a little bit, but it's much more severe at the college level. And so um, 40% or so students who start uh, in a four-year degree program don't have that degree by the end of six years, much less four years. And uh, the, so that, uh, the, the, you know, that's another dimension of this. So, yeah, but uh, how about the, yeah. the, the community colleges? Because the, the, that's where the dropout rate is really high. Like, I mean, at the, before the end of the first year, half of the students have dropped out. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, have you have you looked at the relative efficiency of the junior college sector or the community college sector and the and the uh, four year sector? Yeah, uh, the the community colleges are much 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 cheaper uh, to operate. Uh, they operate. In fact, the cost at a lot of community colleges I think is below uh, that at the, say the secondary school level, high school level, particularly in the large cities. You're talking you. Uh, $15,000 or less per student uh, uh, a year to, to educate the student in the community college. That's the good news. The bad news is, as you say, a lot of them don't make it through. And uh, the, there's a huge dropout rate. And so uh, the, it's a good news, bad news situation. I will say this for the community colleges, and I will say this for the, not, for the so-called for-profit 
schools as well to some extent. They are they have one job and that one job is educating students and they don't pay a lot of attention to research, they don't pay a lot of attention to building fancy buildings and uh, rec facilities and athletic teams or uh, uh, all or, or uh, all of those other things that are uh, secondary to the primary purpose of educating students. So uh, I, I kind of admire the concept of the community colleges, but, but you, it is very troubling, these uh, extremely high dropout rates. So you do write in, the, in your book about the uh, accreditation cartel, or uh-huh. you might even call it the accreditation scandal. Uh, I, I don't think very many uh, people are fully aware of all of that in higher ed. Could you could you lay that out a bit oh, for our yeah. audience? I don't know if we have enough time, uh, Professor Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I forgot whether I, I think the last time I looked back, I had nine problems with accreditation, and there are some biggies in there. For one thing, just for starters, uh, accreditation at least had the, the idea behind it, at least in part, was to help consumers identify the schools that are, are good or at least reasonably good from the, the quack schools, the schools that, that are uh, teaching very little or nothing. And uh, uh, nowadays, I don't know that, that there's much consumer information provided by accreditation. Uh, you, 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 you teach at Harvard. Uh, uh, nearby is a school called Bridgewater State, uh, 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 Suffolk University. I'm, I'm thinking schools in the Boston area. Uh, and they're all accredited by the same accreditor. They get the same general accreditation as Harvard does. And so what does the student learn? It's accredited. Big deal. What does that mean? Nothing. Uh, and also, even when accreditation is done, it's, it's, I say accreditation is like pregnancy. You either are or you're not. You either have it or you don't have it. So, um, you know, let's face it, there are degree of, degrees of, co- of, of quality, uh, I mean, variations in quality between schools, and those don't get picked up. There's no transparency either. Tra- uh, uh, accreditation reports are, are provided. Uh, the, the schools issue a press release saying that they've been reaccredited, and no one knows what's inside those reports unless they're released to the public, which they can be, but very often those are kind of kept uh, 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 behind, behind the scenes. The public doesn't know. And so the public is getting very little positive out of accreditation reports. They're expensive. They're costly. There's enormous conflict of interest involved. The people that are being accredited, uh, one minute are uh, uh, doing the accreditation of other schools the next minute. So, as you know, you, uh, there's some question about that, whether that is appropriate or not. Uh, the, the, I, I, I can't. We don't have enough time for me to tell you all the problems with accreditation in the United States. All right, so I will I will duck an even uh, lengthier topic. I'm not going to bring up the diversity uh, issue unless you force me to. But what I do want to make sure we cover is the growing utilization of online courses. And some people say, well, that's the future of higher ed. These courses are much less expensive. Uh, the talented uh, professors can communicate to an ever broader audience. They're, they're going to be uh, students will have a lot of choices. 
Um, is this is this the way of the future, or do students need to have life on a campus? Well, uh, I think uh, online education is something that's here to stay, as far as that goes. But the, the people who say online education is going to take over higher education and replace traditional schools, I think, are, 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 are just fundamentally wrong in that. Because I think a lot of going to college is, first of all, I think a lot of going to college is more than the, the mere act of accumulating facts and, and so forth, they even accumulating knowledge broadly defined. That's part of it. But part of going to college is the uh, uh, socialization dimension of college, uh, the, the, uh, the business of learning to deal with other people and the, the residential experience and so forth. That's expensive. It, it's more costly, but it is part of the, the maturation process of turning an adolescent 17-year-old into a 22-year-old responsible adult at the end of the process. So I think, uh, I certainly think the Harvard-Yale Princetons are here to stay, and I think most of the you know, top-level public universities will be around for a long, long time, and they will be doing what they're doing now, maybe with a larger online component. Uh, there are a lot of things you can learn uh, in terms of just sheer facts and uh, ideas and uh, so forth through uh, interaction in electronic form. But I think the personal interaction between students and faculty does add a lot to the education process. But maybe I'm old-fashioned in thinking that. But I think the, so far the evidence is, is that the markets are saying the same thing. Uh, online is growing some, but uh, it isn't taking over like some people predicted uh, a decade or so ago. So, uh, as I hear you, uh, you you've identified a lot of problems, but nonetheless, you are saying higher education is here to stay. It's going to be challenged in all these dimensions, but it may find a way of muddling through. Is that? Yeah, yeah, they're going to muddle through, but I say they, we're talking about higher ed as, as if it's one entity. Uh, I, I don't agree entirely with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School who says, what, half the schools are going to disappear in the next decade or so. But I do agree that a, a lot of them are, at least 500 are, uh, uh, go to New England right now. The schools are dropping like flies. Uh, uh, I think, what, three, four schools in the little state of Vermont have closed in the last year. And uh, it's, it's uh, uh, I think there's a lot of schools that people uh, are simply going to stop going to. And we're, we also have, on top of that, we have a, a sort of a demographic phenomenon at work, which uh, has already hit, I think, K through 12 quite a bit, and it's going to hit higher ed more in the next decade or so. The 18 to 22-year-old population uh, will not be growing. It will be shrinking in size, probably, unless we have a lot of massive new immigration. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, I, I'm not terribly sanguine about the future. Uh, and I, 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 as I say, creative destruction, to use a term uh, uh, by Joseph Schumpeter, the famous economist Joseph Schumpeter, 
creative destruction, which has helped uh, the business world function pretty well, uh, has uh, led to uh, companies getting very rich and famous like uh, Apple and Google and so forth, but has also led to other companies to going out of business or nearly out of business. Uh, Where is Eastman Kodak these days? Uh, it, it's essentially died or nearly died. And uh, this is the dynamics of capitalism. We don't have that in higher ed. The top 25 schools today are the same top 25 schools as there were 20, 20 30, 40 years ago, uh, by, by and large, uh, with very modest exception. So why is that? Why, do, why is there such staying power in higher education? Of course, that makes uh, those of us at Harvard very self-indulgent and self-satisfied. We think nothing can happen to knock us off uh, one no, of those well, top well, rungs. But you got a thirty-seven billion dollar endowment that helps a little bit, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that's the. But the but only I think factor. there's there's more to it, right? It's it's somehow yeah, yeah. the brand name counts so much in education. The brand name does count for a lot in education, but you know the brand name counts a lot in the real world of outside education. As I say, Eastman Kodak was a, a venerated name 20, 30 years ago. Everyone had to have the uh, Kodak camera, a camera and bought Kodak film and all. Now the technology has completely wiped that out. It's changed it totally. That's so much less so in higher ed. And also there's the issue of public subsidies. Uh, the market can't, doesn't kill off universities because there are backstops. There are protections. Uh, uh, the student loan program allows colleges to raise tuition fees a lot. Uh, 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 research grants provide overhead money that provide income for the colleges uh, that, that uh, uh, allow them to uh, partially offset the uh, enrollment declines and so forth. So there are some protections that the higher ed sector has, and obviously this is true of K through 12 as well, that allow failing schools or schools that ought to be closing or being in danger, they allow them to continue. My, my gosh, uh, you certainly see that in K through 12, but you also see it to some extent in higher ed as well. So is, are you saying uh, that free college might save our colleges? So free college? <laughs> oh, I, I was afraid you were going to raise that for Professor Peterson. We might be here for another half hour. <laughs> uh, I am concerned that these various proposals for free college, uh, for uh, loan forgiveness, and so forth, I think they're mostly uh, very ill-considered uh, proposals. Uh, 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 why shouldn't students pay to go to college? Why shouldn't they have a stake in the game? By the way, where students have a stake in the game financially, uh, they tend to do better because they're under financial pressure to get through college. Uh, students do better, even controlling for a whole variety of other things. Students going to private schools do better than ones going to public schools. Why? Because tuition fees are higher. And uh, you can't just loaf around and stick around another year or two because if you're paying thirty or $40,000 in tuition fees, that's consequential. And so you, you're, you're under, there's incentives to get through. And that's uh, a, a dimension that uh, I think is important. 
Well, absolutely. Uh, we appreciate yeah. things more in life if we pay for them. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Vetter, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with uh, Richard Vetter, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Ohio University and author of a fascinating new book, Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern Time. Thank you for joining me.